Some of you who've known me over many, many years uh, have remarked on the fact that I seem to increasingly have taken up bowing. <laughs> so this evening I'd like to talk about the long journey to a bow. Because it is a question that comes up many times people who are newer to the practice or less familiar with the retreat environment ask me about why why do people bow when they come into the hall or why do people bow to the Buddha statues? And some people assume that it's a kind of ritual somehow reserved for those who've officially become Buddhists. Um, Some people say that they're uncomfortable with it, that they came to this tradition because it was free, perhaps, from a kind of religiosity that they weren't comfortable with in their past. I would say that there probably are many reasons for a bow. Sometimes a bow is a gesture of respect and appreciation for and gratitude for the lineage of teachers and teachings and yogis who've gone before us and who've made it possible for us to be here. Some people bow as a way of taking refuge, not obviously in a statue, but taking refuge in the possibility of awakening, taking refuge in the path, and taking refuge in the sangha or community. Some people bow as a way of setting a clear intention for that period of practice, really marking a beginning, a dedicated beginning. And there are probably countless reasons I have no idea about. But what I really want to speak about, at least in the beginning of this talk, and then I'm going to amplify, is my long journey to a bow because it has been a very long journey. When I began to practice, I began to practice in the Tibetan uh, tradition and culture. And this is a serious bowing tradition. You know, not just an inclination of the head or, you know, a little hands together gesture, but it's a full prostration tradition. You know, I've seen Tibetan pilgrims going on pilgrimages of hundreds, sometimes many hundreds of miles, where they don't take a single step, but where they do full prostrations all the way. It takes a very long time to get somewhere. I've seen new many of Tibetans in the community I lived in who actually walked around with these huge calluses on their forehead and on their knees, and at first I couldn't understand. I thought maybe this was some sort of genetic Tibetan illness when I <laughs> first arrived there. And then I realized this was actually the outcome of decades of bowing and doing full prostrations. When I first began to train, I went to my teacher and I went into his hut. And the first thing I saw was a few old students prostrating themselves at his feet. And my first response was incredibly visceral um, before it even entered the level of thought. It was just a major, no way. (laughs) Not going to happen for me. What I saw in that was a certain kind of uh, humiliation or a certain kind of subjugation or a certain kind of self-effacement. And for sure, I was going into that teaching with plenty of my own pride. And I thought, well, here sits this old dude, bald, plump, unsmiling, you know, swaddled in these red robes, and why would I lower myself before him? (laughs) He didn't even take a bath very often. And I I thought, well, who is he to deserve this, or who is he to warrant this? And I, I didn't even have the awareness to notice these recurrent words and these recurrent emotions about I, me, you, him, high, 
low, better, worse, worthy, unworthy. All I knew was that the whole scene really troubled me. Now, over the years, with my own practice and the teaching, I I did find a little more awareness began to develop in the light of actually the teaching. And I felt, certainly growing within myself, a growing uh, depth of respect and appreciation for actually the remarkable wisdom and compassion and patience that he extended not only towards me but towards this incredibly motley group of hippies who turned up on his doorstep demanding to be taught Tantra and he was a hermit. (laughs) And it was only the Dalai Lama who'd said to him, you need to teach these Westerners. He said, me? Surely somebody else could do it, you know, Rinpoche down the road, you know, or Lama so-and-so would be much better at it than me. He was a hermit, but he agreed. And he was a remarkably compassionate and patient person, and I found myself inching my way towards a bow. You know, sometimes it would be just a little bob of the head, And it was a token bow, I have to say. It was a real token bow. Sometimes it was almost a deep and heartfelt bow. But there was still always something within me that felt uncomfortable, that felt some some tension, some withholding around this. Now, over the years as I continue to practice in a lot of, a number of other bowing cultures, in Thai monasteries, I saw elderly nuns with many, many years of practice, really profoundly deep, wise women on their knees before young monks who were only in their teens, you know, hardly even shaving, and prostrating themselves before them. And I saw that the bow only went one way. The young monks never bowed to these elderly, wise women. And at that point, I went into full-blown rebellion. Every inch I'd moved towards a bow previously was completely undone. I was definitely going in the other direction. And this rebellion against what seemed to be, to me, to be a ritual that was filled with expectation, demand, inequality. And I went to Korea, was practicing, uh, was in Korea for a little while, and I saw a practice environment where everyone bowed to everyone and to everything. You know, with smiles and happiness, you know, the monks bowed to the nuns, the nuns bowed to the monks, You know, you bow to the trees, you bow to the river, you bow to the food. And over the years, I've come to see that the bow is really not just a physical gesture. But I've come to see it for myself as a kind of investigation and inquiry, as a sort of invitation to wisdom. So the bow for me has become a metaphor for understanding many aspects of the Dharma, many aspects of the teaching. The bow for me has become a way of understanding some of the dimensions of pride and withholding and fear and uh, discriminating wisdom and um, conceit and gratitude and self-image. So in my understanding, this bowing stuff is really no small thing. But I understand it as a journey. By by the way, this this talk is most 100% definitely not an encouragement to the non-bowers amongst you (laughs) to suddenly take up bowing. Now, the first, perhaps the first area, the first investigation to address is to acknowledge, as a friend of mine, Kate Wheeler, once put it, that bowing is not scraping. And 
It's easy to think of bowing as kneeling or humbling ourselves before someone or something that is more worthy of respect than we ourselves are. And I know initially this was the home of my resistance, and actually, in truth, it's probably a very worthwhile resistance. As if bowing somehow in that, if it's kind of a scraping in disguise, it becomes a sort of statement of unworthiness. And I think clearly over centuries there has been, for women, out of countless conditions too long and too complex to go into, way too much scraping. And for many women, the journey to renounce scraping has been a very long and hard path of reclaiming dignity, reclaiming sovereignty, reclaiming respect, and inner reclaiming of sometimes our own hearts and minds and integrity. And this path is never an invitation to surrender discriminating wisdom. And it is constantly inviting us to understand the difference between a bow and a scrape. Because the scrape holds fear and self-abandonment, abdication of our own hearts and minds. And in my understanding, a true bow doesn't ask for any of this, but that a true bow can be an act of, a radical act, of both love and freedom. Suzuki Roshi, in speaking about a bow, he said, when you bow, there is no Buddha and there is no you. One complete bow takes place. That is all. That is nirvana. Now, my long journey to a bow has been and is a contemplation, what in this teaching is called mana. It is a Pali word that is transcended as conceit or the conceit of self. I think it's very important to understand that the way the conceit of self is used is a little bit differently than how we, what we may associate with the word conceit. Because often when we think of conceit, we, we often think about it as a sense of superiority, a sense of smugness, a kind of self-inflation. I've come to see that we should never underestimate the power of the conceit of self, and actually how ingeniously it can disguise itself. And the conceit of self has the power to keep us locked into these dualisms of self and other, to separate and divide. And actually the conceit of self is truly the root of some of the most profound suffering we experience. Now, in one of the maps of awakening that the Buddha taught, the conceit of self is actually the last of the obstacles to be let go of. It's the very last of the delusions, the last of the confusions to be released. In fact, in the journey towards full and complete liberation, in fact, craving, ill will, fear, doubt, aversion, greed... All of these are let go of before the conceit of self is released. So we sort of get a sense of the size of the cloth. Hmm? No small thing is mana or this conceit of self. So how does mana manifest? Three ways. It manifests as superiority conceit manifests as inferiority conceit, and lastly, it manifests as equality conceit. (laughs) And in one of the suttas of the Buddha, 
He says that one who has truly penetrated this threefold conceit has said to have put an end to suffering and that within this threefold conceit of being better than, worse than, or the same as is held the whole world of our self-view. Within these conceits is held the whole world of comparison, of evaluation, all the measuring that goes on in our lives, inwardly and outwardly, within this conceit of better, worse, or same as, is held the whole world of striving and then despair, of success and failure. Within this threefold conceit are the place, is a place where we deeply cling, find ourselves clinging to and perpetuating positions of I and you, self and other, and all the jealousy and envy and resentment and fear and the beliefs in unworthiness that cause so much suffering and pain in our lives are actually all part or held within or born of this conceit of self or mana. And in a real way, it's said that this conceit of self <clears throat> disbars us, disbars us from the true depths of compassion and freedom and empathy that is possible for us. Now, what mana or the conceit of self actually describes is the ways that we contract around a view a view of ourselves, or a view of others. So I'm going to break this down. Let's look at it a little bit. First of all, let's look a little bit at this conceit of self that expresses itself in superiority conceit, where we might feel better than, or smarter than, or superior to another. Now, this superiority conceit can gather around a lot of different things. It can gather around our appearance or our body. You know, I'm more attractive or I'm more slim. As we get older, we think, well, I'm more toned (laughs) than you. Last year, I won, I won the rowing trials in my gym for my age group. And when they put a sign on the gym door that Christina Feldman is the winner of the rowing trials of her age group, I just was so embarrassed. And I realized, actually, this is conceit. This is actually conceit. It's not, why can't I just treat it as a fact? I mean, I felt pretty good about it, but, but I realized actually the other part of feeling good was this terrible sense of embarrassment, you know, that I shouldn't feel so, so you know, see my name on the door winning the rowing trials. <laughs> One of the markers I know when I'm, to be fully enlightened is when I can listen to myself on tape. (laughs) This is an absolutely unbearable experience for me. Can you listen to yourself on tape? It's unbearable. It's unbearable. And this is conceit. Why is it not just a fact? So I, I really look at this. You know, I could practice with listening to myself on tape, but I have, you know, nicer things to do with my day. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, for, for this kind of conceit to arise, we also not only need an I, we need a you. You know, for comparison, judgment, and jealousy and envy to arise, we do need this self, and we do need this sense of other. As sometimes superiority conceit can gather around our mind, our intellect. You know, we think I'm smarter than someone. 
I would never say something so dumb as that. You know, we listen to another person and inwardly we're sort of flinching, you know, about their stupidity or, you know, their, their lack of acuity or whatever. We might get a look at the letters after our name and feel very pleased. Sometimes superiority can, see, can gather around even our, our meditation, our attainments in life. We might go, you know, competitive interviews groups, you know, we might feel that, oh yes, you know, I'm, I'm, look at someone beside us shuffling around and say, oh, I don't do that anymore, you know, I'm beyond that, you know, or look at someone who's very restless, oh, you know, beginners, <laughs> say to ourselves, you know, not that, I don't do that anymore. We might find ourselves congratulating ourselves you know, and then looking down, being more judgmental about another, unable just to see suffering and the end of suffering. It's all about where I am and where you are. In the early years of my practice, one of the great conceits was to be identified with the great vehicle. You know, I was a Mahayana practitioner. I used to live high up in the Himalayas, you know, and we would look down the mountains, all of us Mahayana, great vehicle practitioners together at the lesser vehicles who lived on the plains, you know. <laughs> Those Theravadans down there, you know, don't really understand the practice, you know, don't really understand about liberation. Intolerable, insufferable conceit. Sometimes it could, you know, manifest as, you know, I'll just sit a little longer after the bell is rung, you know. Maybe somebody will notice, you know. <laughs> I'll be a little slower on my walking path, you know. Maybe someone might notice and, you know, really admire how, how well I'm practicing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the most enthusiastic bowers are really locked in superiority conceit. Look how humble I am. <coughs> it's very easy to manifest superiority conceit when it comes out in sort of arrogance or bragging or the ways that we might see imposing excellence, our excellence upon the world. But it can also be so subtle. You know, I remember when my children were young, you know, that one of their favorite kind of refrains was, look at me, look at me, look at me. And it wasn't because I neglected them or they got no attention. It was just this need to be special. No one's the same as me. Sometimes superiority can can even manifest as a kind of false modesty. Of course I'm wonderful, but I won't mention it. There's a story of a rabbi dying and on his deathbed, you know, all the local rabbis came to visit him and he was kind of like sort of semi-conscious, lying there with his eyes closed. And all the other rabbis gathered around his bedside, bedside, praising him and extolling his virtues, you know. And one rabbi would say, oh, rabbi, you know, you were such a wonderful speaker. You touch people's hearts and oh another rabbi you were such a scholar you know no one will ever know the teaching as well as you and oh rabbi you know you were so kind you were always available to the to everyone and then other rabbis left the room and his wife was there and, and noticed that her husband was kind of restless on his bed and she said you know why, why are you so restless did you not hear all the wonderful gratitude and praise he says yes but no one mentioned my humility Now, it is interesting, superiority conceit, because it really is just one of the ways that we solidify a sense of self, but it has a real shadow side. And it's often like the fear of blame, the fear of criticism. Sometimes it's just the inability to say sorry, the inability to apologize. Sometimes it's the fear of loss, of being exposed in some way. Superiority conceit, on one level, can look better than inferiority conceit. But in truth, they both cause the same suffering. And superiority conceit actually distorts compassion into its near enemy of pity. 
rather than being able to connect just with suffering and to know the universality of suffering. We feel somehow divorced and we pity those who seem worse than us, worse off than us, rather than being able to open with a genuine compassion. I think superiority can see it. We can leave a very big footprint in the wor- on the world. And Dogen once said, he said, speaking of non-dependence of mind, coming, going, the water birds don't leave a trace and don't follow a path. There's something about letting go of superiority, conceit, all conceit. Locked into these concepts of better and worse, we get, do get very preoccupied with praise and blame, craving one and fearing the other. And I think locked into these conceits, we are very far from a bow. Now, the other side of mana is inferiority conceit, perhaps something more familiar to us. When we feel less than or worse than and inferior to and lower than, the chronic sense of unworthiness and not good enough that is so endemic in our culture. And in the torment of inferiority conceit, we can look with a certain envy at those who seem to inhabit this better world of superiority conceit because those people seem to be invulnerable. We imagine that they're much happier than we are. And sometimes the remedy to the torment of inferiority conceit would seem almost to try and become like those who, who walk through the world with seeming so much apparent assurance or confidence. We might envy them in resentment. And then envy and resentment and this sense of lack goes round and round in a kind of vicious circle. But inferiority conceit can also be so subtle because it's like, it's like an open wound. It's like a, a vacuum inside. And in truth, you know, so much of our... It, it's, it's a sense of, of lack. Lack. Deficiency deprivation. And actually, in truth, you know, so much of our economy actually plays on this sense of lack, the sense of insufficiency. You know, rooted in our belief system, it's kind of like an open door in which the selling of empty promises can take place. You know, to have the perfect body, to, to strive for all the things that we become convinced that we need and don't have. I recently read this ad that's so stand. No, listen to this ad on TV. It so astounded me. It says, "Perfection is every woman's right." <laughs> I thought, well, that's quite extraordinary. <laughs> but it is such an embedded belief system. Promoting greed, promoting striving, and promoting an endless, endless replay of self-judgment. I'm not enough, I don't have enough, I'm not good enough. So opposed to what the teaching of liberation really is about, where we're encouraged really to ask ourselves, not about how to be perfect, but to encourage to ask ourselves what in this moment is truly lacking. And to know that there is nothing that is truly lacking. And inferiority conceit, of course, is also the forerunner of the scrape, of scraping, creating heroes and heroines that occupy a landscape that feels impossible for us to occupy. And I think, actually, it it is truly shocking that the greatest cause of death for women in, in our culture of a certain age is domestic violence. And, you know, not at all to be try to be simplistic or gratuitous about it, but superiority and inferiority con- conceit are often locked together in a lethal marriage. 
On a subtler level, inferiority conceit leads us to see that liberation is something impossible. In fact, when there's inferiority conceit, we find it really, really difficult to hold goals and aspirations skillfully. We know how to bow to others, but we don't know how to bow to ourselves. And I think sometimes learning to bow to ourselves is not the end of the story and not the end of the journey, but it is maybe a step on the path to realizing the way in which a bow can be just a bow. We're all our ideas of self and other, and worthiness and unworthiness fall away. I have so noticed the allergy that many of us in the West in practice have to even the word goals, even the word aspirations, how hard it is to hold goals in our practice in a skillful and kind way. I think in our culture and in our history and on maybe on a, a personal level, we, we've maybe seen the way that goals get surrounded by ambition and forcing and striving and tension and, and the possibility of a deep sense of failure. And then we can start to feel that holding goals is a way of causing ourselves to suffer. And then I hear people in practice say, well, I have no goals. I have no goals in this practice. Or they say, would find it hard really to say with some sincerity and wholeheartedness that I practice to know the same freedom that all the Buddhas of all time have known. People would find it hard at times to say that I practice to be liberated. I think a real step on this path is to see that goals never cause us suffering. Goals have never caused us to suffer. It was a conceit of I that ties itself to goals that causes us to suffer. That we think it's my success and my failure and that my fear of failure is, is protected by having no goals We think in terms, when the conceit of I ties itself to goals, then we think in terms of progress, progress and failure, going forward, going backwards, and all the judgments and comparisons that can follow. And I think sometimes to avoid this suffering, we can tend to surrender aspirations in this practice, as if liberation is really not possible for us. But in truth, I think it's really, really important to learn in this practice, to learn to be comfortable with goals, not just as a word, but as a sense of possibility. That it's really, really important to learn how to be comfortable with aspiration. And I think learning to be comfortable with goals and aspiration is, first of all, to see and to understand and to liberate ourselves from the conceit of self, inferiority conceit, and superiority conceit, that we practice to be liberated, that we practice because it seems impossible, that we practice to reclaim the sense of what is possible in each moment. And we learn to bow to that understanding. And bowing in that moment is really an invitation to liberate the moment from the bind of inferiority and superiority conceit. You know, last year I was teaching a retreat for uh, people who uh, teach uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy in their lives and in their work. And part of that work, of course, is teaching people to be mindful, obviously. <laughs> and and how many of these people, these these professionals, these practitioners, brought up at that retreat the feeling that they don't feel good enough to do what they were doing. They don't feel good enough to teach what they were teaching. And they saw that that that's such a burden. You know, and and John Kabat-Zinn and I said to them, of course we're not good enough. Is that a problem? (laughs) 
You know, when we're all totally liberated, then we'll feel that we're good enough. Meanwhile, not feeling good enough, instead of being a problem, is actually an inspiration. I mean, if you just totally liberate that from all sense of negativity and problem and personal failure, I, you know, not feeling good enough, actually to me that inspires me to practice. It inspires me to reach for what's really possible. It inspires me to deepen. doesn't hinder. It's, it's a liberation in some ways. And it's a liberation from this whole bouncing around, in, you know, feeling that we're inferior, so therefore if we were, you know, we would feel superior, have superiority conceit if we felt good enough. In truth, letting go of inferiority conceit is a way of ennobling our lives and hearts. It's a way of bringing dignity and authenticity. But it's really important to understand that laying down inferiority conceit does not leave a vacuum behind it. It releases our capacity for mudita, for appreciative joy. It releases our capacity to celebrate gladness, to celebrate love, to rejoice in what is, to rejoice in the good fortune of others, and to rejoice in our own blessings. When we see the suffering involved in superiority conceit and inferiority conceit, we might be tempted to think that equality conceit is the middle path. But I don't think it is. Equality conceit is a conceit of reductionism. It's like saying, oh, we're all schmucks. (laughs) You know, we're all greedy. You know, we're all confused. We're all deluded. We're all the same, aren't we? You know, we're all suffering. Now, I think, you know, to say this, it could seem a little comfortable, and it could seem kind of reassuring. But this reductionism is a way of seeing, actually, our own delusions reflected in the lives and hearts of others. You know, and we find then we we can't actually have aspirations. We can't have model, role models. We can't have mentors. We can't even have Buddhas. Because we're always finding the fault and the imperfections in our heroes and heroines because we can't allow them to exist. Because then when we find the flaws and the imperfections in others, it reassures us. We say, I'm not so bad after all, am I? But my sense is that equality conceit is a kind of disillusionment with human possibility. And it breeds a kind of cynicism. Um, Yeah, it breeds a kind of cynicism. It's a kind of disillusionment with human possibility. It's even like when we look at those who somehow seem wiser or more compassionate to ourselves, we can't allow it to be. You know, it was so interesting to me, like just after Al Gore received his, you know, award for an inconvenient truth, immediately in the newspapers there was published these articles about the energy consumption in his home. <laughs> and I said, well, no, we couldn't even admire the fact, you know, that actually the, the truthfulness and the message, the importance of the message in, the, in that film, couldn't allow that to be. Had to take it away and say, oh, yeah, but, you know, really, he's just like us. You know, of course, the articles didn't say about way offset, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the, the environmental power generation he used. It just published this piece. It was almost like someone could not bear for someone to say what he did. With equality conceit, we can look at those who seem worth, worse off than us. And we know we've been there and we're kind of relieved and we don't really have to bow at all in equality conceit. But cynicism and bitterness and hopelessness are very sad ways to live. They're very degraded ways to live, I think. Now I'd like to just give you some examples and look at the way that some of these conceits might play out. And this is a, this is a double act here. Now, suppose Narayan and I fell off our cushions. (laughs) (laughs) Or in the dining room, we dropped our lunch. 
all over the floor. Now, if either of us were locked in superiority conceit, we would probably feel mortified. This would be a dent in our self-image. If we were locked in inferiority conceit, we would probably not be here. (laughs) Or we would disguise it well, and when we dropped off our cushion, we would tell you it was a teaching. But we would still be devastated and think we've been exposed and now everybody knows. (laughs) If we were locked in equality conceit, we would say to you, don't expect anything else. We're all dull. It doesn't get any better. We're just going to stay like this. Now, what would happen when Narayan fell off her cushion, and you were locked in um, those conceits. If you were locked in inferiority conceit, you would be so disappointed in us. You'd say, oh, really, you know, you're supposed to do better than this. You're teachers, after all. If you were locked in... uh, Sorry, if you were locked in inferiority conceit, you would be disappointed in us. If you were locked in superiority conceit, you'd be feeling a little smug. Look at them. I don't fall off my cushion. (laughs) And if you were locked in equality conceit, you would feel very consoled. Now I can sleep happily. Now, you notice that all these threefold conceits, they tend to lead to a lot of storytelling hmm? about ourselves and about others. Now, turn the same scenario around and you fall off your cushion or you drop your plate in the dining room. How would that threefold conceit play out for you? If you were locked in inferiority conceit, you might suffer for hours. Everybody saw this. You might bring in years of history. You know, I've always blown it. You know, all the failures of my life. You know, never be a good yogi. You bring in all the future. You do super mortified number. If you were locked in equality conceit, you'd be sort of waiting for the next person beside you to fall off the cushion. A little bit of hope. Hmm? If you were locked in superiority conceit, I never do that. You know, that, I wasn't really sleeping. That was just a twitch. It was an energetic release. And, Now, what we see happening in this threefold conceit is this process of selfing, going round and round and round, getting more fixed and more solid, solidifying the view of self, solidifying the view of other. Now, this is actually what practice is dedicated to liberating. First, we need to sensitize ourselves to the process. You know, some ways it's obvious. Judgment, comparison striving, despair, all the kind of subtler self-views. I am, you are. It's not so hard for us to see. But we learn not to become agitated about it. We learn to bow to those moments of sensitivity, bow to those moments of knowing, because here we can solidify and suffer, or here we can start to liberate the conceit of self. Now, life sometimes seems wisely, I think, is a tremendous ally in offering us the opportunities to let go of the conceit of self. And sometimes it happens in ways that we don't always welcome and that are very, very difficult. You know, there are times when our worlds fall apart, when we suddenly face unpredictability, when we might face unpredictable loss, illness, hardship, where someone we care for disintegrates, where our own bodies unexpectedly disintegrate. And we know at moments we cannot fix it. We can't control it. 
and we can't make it go away. And if you really see those moments, one of the things that can happen if we can see them wisely is that this conceit of I actually gets eroded because we just can't make the world happen the way we want it to. The conceit of I gets eroded by circumstances in our life, in our bodies, in our minds. We can't control. There's no more we can do. And in those moments, we can sink into despair. We can sink into fear and agitation, or those moments can be profoundly liberating for us. There was a teacher who was once asked, what is the secret of your happiness and your equanimity? And she answered, the secret to my happiness and equanimity is a wholehearted, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. Suzuki Roshi speaks of the bow as a way to challenge mana, as a way to challenge the conceit of I, as a way of challenging all the ways that we hold ourselves apart and contracted, as a way of challenging all these ideas we hold about ourselves, of being better or worse <coughs> or the same as. A bow as a way of ending suffering. He said it in this way, he said, when everything exists within you, when everything exists within your big mind, all dualistic relationships drop away. There is no distinction between heaven and earth, teacher and disciple. Sometimes a man bows to a woman. Sometimes a woman bows to a man. Sometimes a disciple bows to the master. Sometimes a master bows to the disciple. Sometimes a master and disciple bow together to the Buddha. Sometimes we may bow, to cats and, may bow to cats and dogs. In your practice, you should accept everything as it is, giving to each thing the same respect given to a Buddha. Here there is Buddhahood. The Buddha bows to the Buddha, and you bow to yourself. This is the true bow. Now, clearly is not speaking of the bow here as a physical gesture. It could be. We're really speaking about an attitude of heart, an attitude of welcoming, an attitude of respect, an attitude of an unconditional willingness to meet and cooperate with the unavoidable. Whether it is lovely or difficult, easy or hard. Nagarjuna, the great Indian teacher, says, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? (laughs) And the bow is to stop wanting it to go away. This is a liberation, a liberation of the moment. Bow by bow, we liberate the moment from all the torments of resentment, the exaggerated responsibility, the agitation that attaches itself to our preferences, the agitation of endlessly modifying, manipulating what is. We learn to simply bow. To what is that this is our life this is all of our life when i was teaching in cuba earlier this year where conditions were incredibly incredibly difficult and challenging and nothing worked and every day was you know a day of some crisis or other i suddenly looked over at this guy one of my students who'd come with me to translate and he had this big smile pasted on his face. And I looked at him and I said, Eduardo, what are you so happy about? <laughs> and he said, if all of this was happening at home, I'd be tearing my hair out, I'd be climbing the walls, I'd be screaming and yelling. He says, you know, I suddenly got it. He says, I've been listening to you say, you say this all these years, that we cannot control the uncontrollable. You know, that you can't actually grasp the ungraspable or count on anything. He says, I, I think I finally got it. He says, I think this is what it feels like to be enlightened. (laughs) 
In Suzuki Roshi says, we practice bowing as long as our life is. Because to bow is to open our hearts to this moment with respect and care. To bow is to learn to let go of the conceit of I that keeps us locked in this very small world of competitiveness and fear and striving and better and worse are the same as. And we can begin to hold the world with compassion, hold our own world with compassion, just as we can hold the vast amount of suffering in our world with compassion. And not all the pain in our life or world can be fixed, but all the pain in our world can be met with a bow. Now, some pain and torment in our world is the pain born of the conceit of better, worse, and the same as. And this we can heal with wisdom. We can heal with understanding, the compassion of learning to step out of that conceit of self. I just to end with a poem. You know the sprout is hidden inside the seed. We are all struggling, none of us has gone far. Let your arrogance go and look around inside. The blue sky opens out further and further. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades. A million suns come forward with light when I sit firmly in that world. If we have just a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.